Snark Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. Well, regrettably, we couldn't cancel 2020 or 2021, and it seems that many of us are still struggling to get our money back from postponed holidays and plans due to snap border closures and outbreaks. So can tourism operators and planners refuse to refund your booking even when governments close borders on the case of one single outbreak of COVID or when we're being encouraged to stay home if we have even the slightest of sniffles? Jared Brody is from the Consumer Action Law Centre in Melbourne, and I'm so happy to have him here today to talk me through all of my COVID cancelled my life questions. Jared, welcome. Great to be here with you, Amy. Firstly, wanted to know why is COVID so different from other non-pandemic times when it comes to cancellations? Mm. Look, it is different, and it's not different. I guess at the same time, really, the difference is is that where a service provider cancels an event or cancels your travel plans, they generally have to provide a refund pursuant to the Australian consumer law. And so generally, if you get a cancelled service, you'll get that right to a refund. However, if the reason for a cancellation is outside the control of the service provider, so they didn't cause the cancellation, then those consumer guarantee rights just simply don't apply. And then we really rely on what's in the terms and conditions of a contract between you and that service provider. So it seems like there's also, some of this is, to use everyone's hated word, unprecedented about COVID, but also some of it is precedented. But looking to the specifics of COVID and say, for example, and particularly now with the sort of with rats now being available mm-hmm. and say I get a positive test that's right before the night of my booking and I'm all excited to go and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, okay, I'll just do a rat. And then suddenly the rat comes back with the dreaded positive finding. How possible is it at that point when it's under 24 hours to reschedule something or get my money back? Yeah, again, because in those circumstances, you're the one cancelling the service, not the service provider, then really your rights depend on what's written in the terms and the conditions of the contract. So many service providers at the moment are giving flexible refunds, even if you have to cancel with short notice. So I would really be encouraging anyone wanting to book today to look out at those detailed terms and conditions and work out what their rights are. They also, uh, I guess the terms and conditions are important, but they're not everything. So it's important that terms and conditions are fair. If it's entirely imbalanced in the favour of the service provider and you have no rights, then that may be unfair. So an example in the scenario that you just provided, if they say, no, we're taking all of your money and we're not giving you anything, then that's arguably an unfair contract term. Mm -hmm. Um, However, if it's said, well, what we'll do is we'll postpone your trip. And that's probably a reasonable approach and wouldn't be considered unfair. So are businesses just allowed to make up anything in their terms and conditions or are there rules and regulations that they have to follow when they're penning their terms and conditions? There are rules. Of course there are. So 
As I mentioned, the other area of Australian consumer law is our unfair contract term laws. And they basically say that where a term of a contract causes significant detriment to the consumer, to the benefit of the trader, and there isn't really a legitimate reason for that term, then it can be found to be unfair. So that's a way to challenge terms and conditions that you think are just one-sided. The other thing that businesses can't do is they can't mislead you. For example, they might say that, yes, we will give you a refund, but when push comes to shove, they don't give you a refund. They throw Uh, up all these roadblocks. That's right. Cancellation fees, late change fees. Like, are these these legal? Like, it's... I had something the other week where someone tried to slap like a $15 late change Mm. fee on me and I was like, like, of course I paid it, like it's $15, but... Are these things really allowed? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, they probably are in most instances. As I say, if they're provided for in the terms and conditions of the contract, so you do need to have a look at those. And I agree with you, no one reads them. That's one of the problems (laughs) about this scenario. In your line of work, when you have people coming to you with consumer law issues, how many times have people actually read the fine print? (laughs) (laughs) That is a really great question. And I think it is... Rare, very rare, almost never. No one reads the fine print, let's admit it. In fact, some businesses make it really hard to read the fine print, particularly when you're booking online. I know that I've had that experience when you're booking a ticket and it's telling you you've only got 30 seconds to to get to the next screen and fill in your information. And within that time, you're meant to read the terms and conditions, but it's impossible to do that if Mm. you tried. Those sort of practices are are really abhorrent in my view and and businesses should make it more accessible to read terms and conditions. But also we should be designing consumer law in a way that recognises that people aren't going to read the terms and conditions. We just need businesses to be treating us fair. Mm, And just, you know, keeping it to sort of a couple of, a handful of dot points or something like that that's a bit easier. Obviously, in the past two years, a lot has changed. And for so many people, they've had their individual circumstances change in a million different ways. So a booking that someone may have had for a holiday in 2020, and even if they've received flight credits and those sorts of things, Mm. things have changed so much. What happens if people are like, look, obviously now we're coming out of the pandemic and and things are changing when it comes to travel. But if someone's like, look, I've just changed my mind and I don't want to go Mm. anymore, is there a good faith that businesses might say, okay, we recognise that and we would refund? Or are they going to hold tight to those credits? Yeah, look, it will depend on the business. I think with most airlines throughout Australia, our consumer affairs regulator, the ACCC, took really quick action during 2020 and 2021 to keep the faith with those businesses. So that in many cases, some of their terms and conditions said that they would provide a refund. But in practice, if you contacted them, if you could get through, they would only give you a voucher or a credit. So it may be you're in that category that you got a voucher or credit, you do actually have a right to a full refund if you recontact them. So it's always worth trying. Even if they don't initially, you can always escalate that complaint. Because I think businesses should be looking at people on a case-by-case basis to really understand their circumstances. And as you say, if there's no way that you can use that booking again in the future and there's no other way that money can be used, that business shouldn't get a windfall gain. Again, some of these arguments get quite legalistic into the terms and conditions of of contracts, but I always think it's worth advancing a a complaint because as we know, businesses really care about their customers. They need them to come back. They want happy customers. So using that to your advantage in these conversations is important as well. Who or what is the ACCC? 
The ACCC is our national consumer law regulator, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. And they're the ones you'll often see in the media suing, uh, you know, the energy companies, the telco, the banks for breaches of consumer law, whether they mislead us in, in advertising or take advantage of customers in some other way. Anyone can complain to the ACCC. They won't take on all the cases, of course, but they will take where there is a systemic impact. I want to ask you about businesses and how they can be affected. Say, I'm thinking businesses like restaurants, where obviously Mm. if someone has a booking for four or six people and then on the day it's, you know, people in in the booking have got COVID, what do you do? And if you're a business owner, I can imagine that in good faith you want to say, well, of course, like, obviously you don't come in, but you don't want to punish someone for Mm. getting sick. Is there anything that companies can do if they lose money because of cancellations? Is there any way that they can get redress for that? Or is that just a matter of just having to wear the chance that it's your business that's going to be the victim of an outbreak of cases and a whole host of cancellations? Well, I do think that the businesses do wear the risk in most circumstances. I mean, and that's, I think, appropriate. I mean, compared to the individual, you know, they're the customer. The customer should be, I guess, the the sovereign one, the one that's right in the circumstances. And the business needs to accommodate to meet the customer's needs. That's the way the marketplace works. Businesses can take steps to protect themselves and do. So they can um, put conditions in their terms to say that, you know, payments must be made up front. I know many restaurants these days are wanting that credit card yeah, number. Yeah, credit card or, guarantees and things. That's, that's right. And so that's one way a business can protect itself and be taking some deposits or something like that to make sure that they're not losing out. I guess it's a balance though for businesses because if, if they get known for being too mean or too strict, people may not want to return to that business because particularly today when, you know, so much is uncertain, We don't know if we're going to be able to commit to that booking next week. We want some flexibility and I think that businesses should respect that. I do want to ask you one question and if anyone has worked in retail, they have heard this phrase. I'm interested to know legally the answer. Is the customer always right? (laughs) Well, I think it's a good good phrase. It's a good thing to be saying if you're a consumer. It really depends on the situation. They won't always be right. I mean, there are circumstances where a consumer is making a complaint when, you know, they just don't have rights under consumer law. Perhaps the product they've bought, you know, they're alleging it to be faulty, but it's just not. So they're not entitled to a refund in those circumstances. And likewise with cancellations, you know, if the business is being reasonable, is acting within its terms and conditions, they're not unfair they're not misleading you. For example, they may be happy to give you a voucher that's flexible, that's able to be used in the future, that's not restricting you in any way to always insist on a, a full refund in those circumstances, I don't think is lawful. Mm. Obviously, a lot of the COVID cancellations have been around overseas holidays and overseas mm. plans. What happens if you're having a disagreement or a battle to get your money back and the company is based abroad, are they obligated to follow Australian law? Are you bound by international law? Like where? what's the jurisdiction when it yeah. comes to overseas holiday cancellations? So Australian consumer law does apply, as they say in the legal fraternity, extraterritorially. And what that mm. means is that it applies to businesses operating overseas that are contracting with Australian consumers. So if the consumer is located in Australia, your consumer law rights apply wherever the business is based. 
And that includes online shopping, for example. Many people are online shopping these days from overseas entities Mm. or making bookings, as you say, from overseas entities. The challenge with it, of course, though, will be enforcing your rights against a provider. Mm -hmm. So if, for example, you're dealing with a large ticketing company that might be based in Ireland, some of them are based in Ireland, they have an Australian office, you know, even though they're based in Ireland, that that you would be able to make a complaint and hopefully that be able to be resolved through Australian dispute resolution. However, if you are dealing with, you know, a mum and dad bed and breakfast in Greece, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, I, I think enforcing your rights against them through Australian legal system is going to be more difficult because, you know, even if you put a claim into your court or a tribunal, they're not going to to turn up. And so there are practical barriers sometimes into forcing your rights against overseas traders. Do you see a lot of instances where there are complications from external providers? I'm thinking booking.com or Mm. hotels.com or those sorts of, or even I want that flight and those sorts of companies that they're the kind of the third party of it. Who trumps who in that respect? And like, is there an airline policy and an external booking provider policy? And can you cherry pick which one and how, how does that work? Yeah, it's it could, it's really complicated, Amy, and it really, really <laughs> depends on the particular platform that you're dealing with. If you're contracting directly with a platform or a, or a travel agent, maybe, and your rights are directly against that provider, then that's who your dispute it would be against. However, many of these platforms uh, style themselves as just an intermediary, just matching services to consumers, and they say that they're not providing accommodation or they're not providing travel what they're providing is just a matching service. Look, unless they're, you know, misleading you in some way or have otherwise breached their terms and conditions of service, your rights are going to lay against the actual travel company or airline or or accommodation provider. One thing that I I am interested in is about vouchers and credits. Mm. So for a lot Mm. of us, we've had for years now had flights or concert tickets or accommodation or something held in a voucher. If you're, say, given through a flight company, like, okay, you've got three years to, to use the voucher. Is that lawful when it's money? Yeah, um, it, it is. I mean, vouchers and credits, our rights are quite limited in relation to them. And this is another area that's in ripe need for reform. Um, mm. And compare the situation to gift cards. They're quite similar to gift cards in a way where there are now laws in place that says there must be a minimum expiry period of at least three years for gift cards that doesn't apply for credits and vouchers. So we're seeing some people with credits that only lasting 12 months, 18 months and expiring and people losing out. The other area with vouchers and credits that I think is really sailing to the wind in terms of lawfulness, and I hope our consumer regulators are investigating, and we've had complaints about this, is that you know, you've, you've made a booking a couple of years ago to fly to Hawaii and it's cancelled, so you got yourself a voucher. Now you go to book it, and you, you find out that the price has gone up three times as much because you're mm. using a voucher compared to if you pay with cash today. Mm. Now, <laughs> that just and seems the flight, to me, the demand for flights and everything like that it seems like it's so much more expensive. So, what was a full flight now is like, well, what is this like an hour's worth of the flight or something? That's exactly right, and it's even worse in the sense that they're charging more today for vouchers than from cash. If you know mm. what I mean, that that's something that uh, people are complaining about. I think is potentially either uh, misleading, perhaps even unconscionable under the Australian consumer law, and I hope is being investigated by our regulators. And also certain companies can be really hard to get in touch with if you do have a complaint or you do want to escalate this into 
sort of something that you need to discuss mm. and nut out. Is there another way to get in touch with people that doesn't involve, you know, spending hours and hours on hold, emailing like 18 different people, talking mm. to chatbots or like stalking, you know, the CEO on social media <laughs> and like trying to find and get an answer? Like where is the easiest place that people can go to for help? Well, I think sometimes people have to resort to those public measures because, as you say, they've been waiting on hold on a call centre and there has no answers or it's just hung up on them after a 45-minute wait Mm. or the emails just go unanswered. So more and more people are using things like social media Mm -hmm. to talk directly to these companies. And, you know, once it's out there in a public sense, I find that they're often more willing or more quick to respond and direct you to someone that can deal with your complaint. So that's open to people, you know, put a complaint via Twitter or Facebook. Stalk away. Um, (laughs) Stalk away. I think that's a really important way that consumers can, I guess, reclaim some of the power imbalances that exist when you're dealing with call centres. If I'm getting nowhere with my complaint, what's the Mm -hmm. process of escalating that? Well, the first thing to do is to put a complaint in writing directly to the business find out who's in charge of the business and go directly to them. Often there may be a complaint manager inside that business. But of course, you may not get joy doing that. So the next step would be to escalate that complaint to a consumer affairs regulator in your state. There is uh, one in every state like Consumer Affairs or the Office of Fair Trading, and they can take consumer complaints and try and resolve it on your behalf Most of them don't have direct powers to resolve individual complaints though. So while that's one step, it may not solve everything. In some sectors, we have ombudsman schemes. Okay. What is an ombudsman? Yeah, good question. An ombudsman is an independent body or person that can resolve individual complaints between a consumer and another entity, in this case, a business. So they can be really great because they have binding powers. They can force a business to comply. They also are much less formal than courts. So often it can just be done over the phone or online through emails and you don't have to make legal arguments. It's really up to that ombudsman to decide what's fair and reasonable in the circumstances and and to resolve the complaint. It's a very uh, formal sounding title, but it's nice to know that it's actually a less stressful and less formal process than having to go down the I'll see you in court path. Uh, Absolutely, because court processes um, can be really complex. You know, not only do you often need legal representation, uh, there are fees and charges involved, there are risks if you lose. Obviously, you were just talking about the idea of you don't want these things to end up in court, Mm. but you do sometimes see, you know, people on Twitter and they get really angry and they're like, you'll be hearing from my lawyer, I'm going to serve you a legal letter or I'll see you in court. How often do these things actually end up in court? Pretty, pretty rarely. Um, there's not a lot of consumer matters that end up in courts. Where they do, it's often, you know, more of the enforcement actions by the regulator. The regulator sort of acts on the public interest and, and sues a company for breaching the consumer law. And we often get multi-million dollar fines. We've had fines recently against the likes of Telstra, energy companies, even the airlines. That occasionally a, a really, uh, you know, activist individual will pursue their rights in court. There was a great case uh, recently that I saw where someone complained about Australia Post um, <laughs> and they uh, refused to deliver parcels uh, to their house because there were some stairs there and the postie didn't want to go up the stairs and refused to, oh, just left a card. 
So they mm. complained about oh, that. Oh, when they leave the card and that you weren't at home. You're like, but I was at right. home. I was at home. <laughs> that's exactly right. And they were successful in their complaint and they got a finding that uh, I think they got $3,000 compensation for the inconvenience involved. So there you go. So some That's people, amazing. So I can yeah. quote this, like, this precedent, this legal precedent the next time that I get the card from Australia Post being like, we're so sorry that you weren't home. And you're like, I think you'll find I actually was at home. See this Absolutely. citation. Use that as a, as a precedent. <laughs> it's a great example. Does every industry have an ombudsman? Unfortunately not, no. Uh, so we do have a number of ombudsman services in Australia, including the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, which is the ombudsman for banks and insurers and finance companies. We also have the telecommunications industry ombudsman for anything about telco or internet service. We have energy and water ombudsmen in the various states, obviously dealing with uh, energy and water companies. In Victoria, we have a public transport ombudsman. There's also a, a private health ombudsman, but they're not in existence in every sector, unfortunately. Um, and one big gap there, Amy, is the travel sector. Mm. Um, unfortunately, yeah, there isn't anywhere that's a free dispute resolution service like an ombudsman that people can take their airline or their, their hotel operator or their tour company to. Um, and I think that is a big gap in our consumer protection framework. Instead, people will have to take their complaint to their tribunal or local court in, in their state here in, where I am in, in Melbourne. It's the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal. Look, they provide a service to resolve these disputes but it can be time-consuming, it can be lengthy, there can be fees involved. It's not necessarily a simple process, particularly if you're complaining about a $500 booking and you've got to take a day off work to go to a, a tribunal <laughs> hearing. That isn't the best way to deal with these disputes and I think we need a travel ombudsman in Australia. And that's certainly been reinforced over the past two years. Have you had a lot of COVID inquiries? There has been, yes, uh, a big spike in complaints from people who, you know, uh, have tried to book tickets, uh, tried to book accommodation or, or travel. Another big area we've had a lot of complaints on are wedding cancellations. People spend a lot of money on weddings. People and do they spend put a lot a, of money on weddings. Yeah, <laughs> they put big deposits down and then when they are cancelled, uh, there have been disputes. In fact, there have been a couple of good tribunal decisions in that area where people have pursued their rights. And in, in most cases, people are getting most of their money back. There might be a small amount for sort of overheads or administration that the provider can keep under what's called frustrated contract laws. That's another area we, we could talk about. Oh, um, I like but, it, frustrated contract. Yeah, so basically what, what that means is if a contract can't sort of proceed because something occurs outside of the control of either party, the consumer or the trader, it's effectively a frustrated contract. And in those circumstances, the consumer is entitled to a, a refund minus a small administration charge. And so that's often been, I think the cases that I've looked at, you know, less than 5% is charged. And so people have generally got their money back in those wedding examples. Yeah, I do want to talk about the wedding examples because obviously it often seemed that new restrictions, it was often a Friday thing, like they would often come mm. in on Fridays and then suddenly the news would be filled with people who were supposed to get married the following day. And in a wedding situation, did you see in your work, like obviously you've got a venue, there's usually flowers, DJ, like you're talking about multiple suppliers. Where were the biggest problems for people? Was it venues? Was it like supply, were florists who's like, well, I've already gotten all these yeah. flowers. What do you want me to do with them? 
Yeah, uh, all of those areas, but probably the biggest expense is the venue because they're generally charging a, a range of add-ons as one cost. And it's those ones that someone has, you know, gone into a twenty dollars or $25,000 contract, which is no small amount of money, and suddenly that they lose the opportunity to have their special day and finding themselves out of pocket. So we did receive a lot of complaints about cancelled weddings. Did you have bad, like, bridezilla moments of very angry <laughs> brides? <laughs> I, I think most people in that scenario are, are, are not so much bridezilla. They're just disappointed, you mm. know? And they're missing out on their special day and their family and friends. And on top of that, to have some sort of financial or contractual dispute as a consumer. It's just not where they wanted to end up. The other thing that I thought is maybe, obviously, we talk a lot about travel and, and obviously that's a big one and travel and big events and restaurants as well. But I have started to notice other industries that can have quite strict cancellation policies or even opt-out arrangements. I'm thinking of gyms. So Mm -hmm. I've tried to break up with a gym before and like I basically had to fake my own death to like get out (sighs) of like this gym contract. And obviously gyms have often been somewhere that during COVID times, a lot of people would think I don't want to go to Mm. an enclosed gym. Higher risk. Yeah, higher risk in those sorts of arrangements, do you often see like problematic contracts in terms of opting out? Like I know gyms that have got quite strict cancellation policies, Mm. for example, if you cancel classes or if you're trying to just quit the gym altogether, it's like you've got to give really long notice periods. Are a lot of those contracts lawful? Yeah, we get a lot of complaints about gym contracts. It is an area of, of great disputation for consumers and exactly those sort of things. I mean, gyms make it very easy to sign up, they to do. quickly sign on the bottom line and you, you've committed yourself to a year's gym <laughs> membership. But to cancel, they make it very, very difficult. You can often not do it online. You can't even do it over the phone. They force you to come in for a, a consultation. Mm. Um, and really the design of the consultation is to get you to stay, not yeah. to l- allow you to cancel. That is one thing that this year the ACCC is going to examine, sort of consumer contracts that make it really difficult to cancel or there are barriers put in front of cancellation. And it happens online as well. It can be really tricky to work out how to unsubscribe or to uncancel, you know, the Netflix account or whatever it is. Mm. That sort of practice may amount to unfair contract terms because basically they're incorporating a term of the contract that says you must follow these steps to cancel. But in practice, it puts a significant imbalance of the rights and op- between the rights and obligations in favour of the trader over the consumer. And if it causes the customer detriment, in this case, it will because you'll be stuck with a contract that you're not using, then it can be an unfair contract term. So I think those things are challengeable and you should make complaints about them if you feel that those sort of terms are unfair. And likewise, if, you know, you've signed a 12-month contract and then after a month, you know, maybe you're moving away or you've had a health issue that means you can't use the gym anymore, you know, some gyms will say, well, you've committed for 12 months, we're going to keep you paying for 12 months again those sort of terms may well be unfair because, of course, the gym can find another customer. They're not always harmed in those circumstances and they should give you some reasonable right to exit the contract without a significant penalty. We're at the stage of the pandemic now where in most, across pretty much all states, we've had most of our restrictions dropped. But obviously at this point in time, it's sort of of an individual exercise in risk assessment and some people feel more comfortable at this point traveling and and doing things that that others would deem at this stage too high risk. Is it best if I've got an issue, so say with a a flight or a travel problem, 
is it best to try and resolve it while we're still living in sort of pandemic times or even in a couple of years, do you think that there'll still be sort of exemptions or or sort of allowances given for sort of trips and things that are cancelled or postponed due to COVID? I would always advise anyone that has a complaint to uh, raise it immediately. Don't wait because if you wait, it will get harder with time to exercise your rights. If you think that you are deserving of a full refund or you think the trader is not treating you fairly or they're forcing you a voucher that you'll never be able to use or it's quite restrictive, then make a complaint about that now. Don't leave it until it's, you know, a week before the voucher set to expire. It's going to be much more difficult at that stage in a practical sense, I think. Do you, similar that you have a lot of people coming to you haven't read fine print, do you have a lot of people who come quite late in the game and you're like, oh, if only you'd come a little bit earlier, this would maybe be a little bit easier? That does happen from time to time. And, you know, in the law, there are what they call limitation periods and they depend on the particular cause of action or legal claim. But commonly in contract, you know, there is a six years commonly from when a cause of action arises. So, you know, if you're leaving it that long, you might lose your rights. I mean, most consumer disputes tend to be arising and resolved much before that. But you, you don't want to get caught out by delays. And so I would encourage people to deal with this when they can. Don't put off having to have that eight-hour on-hold phone call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's the trouble thing. Maybe do the social media trick and, and do a complaint online. Yeah. <laughs> Start stalking. What are some common rights that consumers may not necessarily realise that they have? I think a really important one that people don't know about often is what's called a chargeback. A chargeback? Yeah. So if you buy anything using your credit card, or what they call a scheme debit card. So it might be a debit card, but it's using the Visa or MasterCard numbers on the card. And the product or service that you buy is just not delivered or is inadequate in some way, or maybe they've charged you twice, you know, those sort of scenarios. You can claim a chargeback directly from your bank Mm -hmm. uh, rather than dealing with the service provider themselves. And that can be a quicker and simpler way for people to get a refund, put the money back on your credit card, and then it's a debate between the bank and that service provider to sort it out. Mm. And it's a particular protection that's associated with Visa and MasterCard that, yeah, not many people know about, but it's quite important. So, yep, you get your money back and then they can can fight it out amongst themselves as to who's at fault and who owes who money. But the important thing is the money ends up back in your account. That's correct. Well, Jared, thank you so much for answering all of my questions about COVID cancellation and making me feel better about my attempts to get out of my gym membership. Mm-hmm. It has been so wonderful talking to you and hearing about all of the rights that people can get if they have been affected by cancelled holidays or cancelled plans thanks to the pandemic. So thank you so much. Thanks, Amy. Great to chat with you. What you heard in today's episode is not intended as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified professional. I'm not even a lawyer, remember? So if you are looking for legal advice based on your individual circumstances, head to lawfullyexplained.com.au and find the solicitor who is right for you. Lawfully Explained is a listener production in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales and with support from the Law Institute of Victoria. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. Production by Emily Takato. Audio production by Mitch Calladine. And executive producer is Todd Stevens. Listener.